Amen. So as you can see from the screen, we're, we weren't done with the second commandment last week. Uh, and so uh, we're going to continue that. We were done. Well, let's do this. So before we continue in the commandments and the law of God, I need to correct something that I did last week. So as we're going through, we went through the first and the second commandment last week. And the first commandment is, you'll have no other gods before me. Second commandment is no graven images, no images of any kind uh, of God uh, to aid in our worship. And what we did was we walked through those commands and we talked a lot about the application of those commands in our own lives. And as we talked about the command for not having images, graven images, aids in our worship that basically reflect the creation rather than uh, the true God, we talked about a lot of things. We talked about pictures of Jesus. We talked about symbols. We talked about, we talked about all kinds of stuff. And it shouldn't be surprising, but uh, it, kind of, it kind of was, that the law of God was doing exactly what the law of God does in my heart, in, in many of your hearts. Um, it it kind of stung, you know, it kind of stung. It revealed areas where we may not have completely thought through fully all the applications in our own lives of what it means to have no other gods before Him, to have no images, no graven images, no uh, nothing that comes out of the mind of man that aids us in worshiping God or picturing God or thinking about God. It must come from Scripture. And so that's the law doing what the law is intended to do. Remember we talked about the uses of the law, and one of those is to reveal our sin and drive us to Christ. And to be quite honest, when you, when you look at the law, when you look at yourself in comparison to the law of God in truth, it stings. It stings. It hurts when you see areas of your life or my life where we may not be conforming to God's will, or at the very least, we haven't thought it through if we are conforming to God's will or not. So last week, and what took so long in our discussion was, I spent a considerable amount of time last week, Wednesday trying to mediate exactly where the line is between transgressing the commandment and not technically breaking the commandment. And I think in doing that, I did a disservice to, uh, to all of you. Um, if we look at the commandments and we consistently ask the question, how far out on the diving board can I go before I actually sin and fall off? I think we're missing the point of the commandments. And frankly, we're dulling, we're dulling the intent of God's law. Not saying that, you know, I'm not saying that that's what we were trying to do, but when we, when we hear the application of God's law and we apply it to ourselves, we talked about it yet last week, that we have a tendency to justify our own traditions, our own actions, our own things, and to, um, and to just put that off rather than to think deeply through these and, and really ask ourselves, is this a violation of that command? So from this point on, as we're looking at the commands, and we're going we're gonna to go back and look at the rest of the second command because we didn't get all the way through. From this point on, as we look at the Ten Commandments, I'm going to do my best to give you the meaning of the text as best that we know how. I'm not going to dull the sharp point of God's law. 
Um, uh, the commands are intended to show us our sin. That's what they're intended to do. And to be quite frank, I am, I'm responsible to God for whatever I say up here. I'm responsible to God for how I teach His Word. And I don't want to face Him one day and say, now I was, I was, trying, to, I was trying to convict some people in there and you made it a whole lot easier on people. So I'm not going to be doing that anymore. The commands are intended to bite. They're intended to show us our sin. And they're intended to drive us not to despair and not to uh, depression or anything. It's, they're intended to drive us to Christ for forgiveness. So at their very core, I want to tell you at, on the front end before we begin tonight, the commandments are about our hearts, not just our behaviors. That was one of the things Jesus corrected with the Pharisees. He said, you heard it said, you shall not commit adultery. I say to you, if you look at it with lust, you've committed adultery in your heart. You know, he, he said, you heard it said, you shall not murder. But I say, if you, if you hate in your heart, then you, you've committed that sin. And so it's about our hearts. And he made that clear in the Sermon on the Mount. And so here's the rule of thumb that we're going to use from now on. Okay, you ready? All right. The rule of thumb that we're going to use when dealing with the commandments and asking uh, hard questions about ourselves, about whether I'm, I'm walking in step with this command or whether I've not thought through my, my practices and my traditions and my whatever when it comes to these commands, the rule of thumb is if there is any doubt in your mind, then there is no doubt at all. Okay? That's what we're going to use. If there's any doubt whether what I'm doing is wrong or what I'm practicing is wrong, then just don't do it, okay? If there's no doubt and you're good and I'm sure that I'm not breaking the command, you rock on. But if there's any doubt, then there isn't any doubt. Each of us have to examine our own hearts. We have to examine our own practices as it pertains to what technically may not be a violation of these commands. Now, some are just gross violations. We don't have to, we don't have to, we don't have to beat around the bush about them. We can say that's a gross violation of this command. But there are nuances that we saw last week when we talked about Shows like The Chosen and pictures of Jesus. And there are different things. Oh, is that an image that's aiding in my worship or it's informing me about God? I mean, so a lot of these things we're just going to have to examine uh, our own hearts. Um, and all I know is when we examine God's law, we don't want to be pushing out on the diving board and see how far we can get before we fall in. We want to be, I don't even want to be on the diving board. So if there's any doubt, I'm just out. And that's what we talked about last week. You know, if there's any doubt, I'm just not going to watch it. I'm not going to look at it. I'm not going to whatever. So last time we got kind of bogged down in what technically it means to have a graven image or to use an image to aid our worship and those kind of things and how our worship is affected by that, how we, how we think about Jesus. And so we, we brought up the fact that you know, you, you watch the shows. I've never seen an episode, so I don't know if it's good. I don't know if it's bad. I don't know anything about it. But you watch that, and I know there's dialogue in there that's not in Scripture. So if that informs what I think of Jesus, then that's a problem. That's a problem. So we got kind of bogged down in that. Uh, and so we didn't really have time to deal with the rest of that second commandment. And so we're going to finish the text of the second commandment, and then we're going to look at the third commandment. In the second commandment, we're, of course, told not to have images. It says in, click me one slide forward. My clicker went to sleep. There it is. It says, you shall not make for yourself the carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is in earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. 
you shall not bow down to them or serve them for, and this is the reason, I the, Lord, I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and fourth generation to those who hate me, but showing steadfast love to thousands uh, of those who love me and keep my commandments. And so when you look at this text of the second commandment, it's not just a thou shalt not. There's also a reason that you shouldn't because he's a jealous God. And then there's a warning about what's going to happen if you do, you know, visiting the iniquity. And then there's a promise, but I'm going to show steadfast love to thousands who love me and who keep my commandments. And so when we read this text, there's a lot of misunderstanding from the reason, from the warning, and from the promise. And so we're going to really dive into those and we're going to see what they say and what they mean and what they, what they don't mean. So the reasons given quite simply in verse 5, he says, the reason why you will not have any images, you will not have any bow down before any, any uh, picture of the true God or something in creation that's representing God or anything like that is because God is a jealous God. It says he does not share his glory. He's jealous for his name, jealous for his honor. When you hear the word jealousy, often we think of it in terms of sinful jealousy, uh, like envy or coveting what, what belongs to someone else. Is God's jealousy wrong? No, it can't be. You're right. You know, of course it's not. That's an easy question. It can't be wrong. But what is sinful jealousy and righteous jealousy? Do you know the difference? Just give me what you think. Yes. Righteous jealousy, she said, is deserved. What do you mean by that? Yeah, that doesn't belong to us. She said righteous jealousy is deserved in the sense that Jesus is worthy and our worship and praise and honor belong to him. Sinful jealousy is when we are jealous of something that doesn't belong to us that someone else has. Uh, and I think that's a I think that's a great uh, that's a great definition. Um, I listened to a debate one time between an atheist and uh, a Christian, and it was it was actually really hilarious. But the atheist was they were talking about God's nature and God's jealousy, and he's a consuming fire and all that stuff. And the atheist said, "What would you think of me if I walked in here and said you will honor me and me alone, you will glorify me and me alone? What kind of person would I be?" And the Christian said. Yeah, but to be fair, you, you don't really deserve any of that. <laughs> and so God does. God is, um, when something doesn't belong to you, that's sinful jealousy. I'm jealous of their car, their clothes, their life, their whatever. That's sinful. It doesn't belong to me. It hasn't been provided to me by God. But there are sometimes, even as humans, where it's right to be jealous, where it's good to be jealous. Can you think of some? There's some easy ones. So, yeah, yeah, that's a pretty easy one. Like, if any of you dudes go to hitting on my wife, I'm going to be jealous. And it's going to be a good thing. I mean, it ain't going to be a good thing for you, but it's going to be a good thing that I'm jealous. So, a mother's jealous protection of her children. You know, a father's jealous guarding of his home. A husband jealous when, when you know, 
someone makes a move on his wife. or there, There's some jealousy that's entirely right. In fact, in Numbers 11 and Numbers 25, there's a man named Phineas there who said he was jealous for the glory of God. And so there is jealousy that is right. So uh, at its base, God is not a jealous God because He is needy or because He is greedy or covetous um, of what someone else had has. He's, he's jealous when someone gives what rightly belongs to Him to something else or to someone else. All glory, all honor, all praise, all worship, all adoration, all of it belongs to God who created heavens and earth. So if, in fact, if God were not a jealous God demanding that He alone be worshipped, He alone be honored in that way, He alone be praised in that way as God, He would be denying that He is God. He would be saying, in effect, that something else rightly deserves honor and worship and praise and glory and all of those things, which would mean that He's not God. He would be denying Himself if He were not a jealous God. So jealousy here is entirely appropriate. In fact, it's absolutely necessary to the nature of God. He is all-powerful, almighty, omnipotent, omnipresent. He deserves all of the glory and honor and worship, and it all belongs to Him. And so... The fact is, really, it's necessary to his nature that he is a jealous God. And he takes his worship very, very seriously. Now, look at the warning he gives. So in verse 5, it says, You're not going to bow down to any other image or serve them, for your God is a jealous God. And here's the warning. Visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me. At the end of verse 5. That's the warning. First, first, before we dig into it, look at how God equates worshiping images. He equates it with hatred. He says, you will not worship images. You will not worship other gods. You will not bow down before any image, whether it be representation of another god or representation of the true God. You will bow down to none of these things. You will worship none of these things because I'm a jealous God and I visit the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me. He's equating hatred to the true God with giving honor and praise and worship and what's due to the true God to either a false God or a false image of the true God. He's equating it with hatred. And he brings punishment for those who, for this command. And it says, against the generations of those who hate me, to give worship to any created thing, even in the name of the true God, is to dishonor and to hate the true God, according to his own word. Now, there's a question you're all asking, and it is one of the various misuses of this text, and to be quite frank, it makes me so angry. And what's the question? Generational curses. How many of y'all ever heard of generational curses or new people that have talked about generational curses? Okay, the generational curse is the idea that the ancestor did something terrible and the punishment of that follows the children or the... the descendants in their lives and affects them in the sense of punishment from God. 
It is very, 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 very common. In fact, I had to deal with this exact issue a few years ago here in this church. And I had to deal with it with someone who was, well, I'm not going to tell you the story, but they don't go here no more. The assumption that you make when you believe that this text is teaching generational curses is that the assumption is, oh, the children are just innocent. They're just innocent little perfect little children and they're being punished by a mean old God because their fathers did something guilt and they're guilty of. That's not what the text says. It's not just the fathers who hate God. It's the children too. Do you see it? Says, I punish the, I visit the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me. The idea is the children hate God just like the fathers did. This is God punishing the generations for committing the same sins that they learned from their parents. I mean, yes, there is a reality that children model and learn behaviors from their parents, and there's a real consequence to the sin of parents. Um, filtering down to their children. That's why in Deuteronomy, parents are commanded to teach their children the ways of God and the commands of God. And later, in the, as Israel has gone into captivity in the book of Ezekiel, God is going to specifically command Israel to stop believing and stop teaching the idea of generational curses because it is not true. In Ezekiel 18, I'm not going to read the whole chapter, but the whole chapter is just about this. You can read it and the whole chapter and it will, it, it, he couldn't be more emphatic. It says, the word of the Lord came to me in Ezekiel 18. What do you mean by repeating this proverb concerning the land of Israel? The fathers have eaten sour grapes and the children's teeth are set on edge. Do you see what the proverb means? They're teaching this proverb among Israel. The fathers did something and the kids bear the brunt of the, the punishment for it. They eat sour grapes so the children's teeth are messed up because of the sour grapes. God tells Ezekiel, as I live, declares the Lord God, this proverb shall no more be used by you in Israel. He's saying, stop teaching this. Behold, all souls are mine. The soul of the father as well as the soul of the son is mine. The soul who sins shall die. And then from there, all the way down through verse 20, he says, the righteous one will be you know, commended for their righteousness. The sinful one will be punished for their sin. And then when he gets down to verse 20, he says, the soul who sins shall die. The son shall not suffer for the iniquity of the father, nor the father suffer for the iniquity of the son. The righteousness of the righteous shall be upon himself, and the wickedness of the wicked shall be upon himself. So there was a time in Israel where they were teaching. You know, when the father does something... The punishment is visited on the children and they were using the verse in Exodus to do that. God comes to them through Ezekiel and says, don't believe that and don't teach that. He said, it's no more going to be taught in Israel anymore through Ezekiel. He makes it abundantly clear that God does not punish the children for the sins of the father. And you can tell I get, I get a little passionate about that because the idea of generational curses. So... The, the idea is not, okay, my dad was an alcoholic. I mean, my dad wasn't really an alcoholic, but you know, my dad was an alcoholic, therefore I'm an alcoholic and it's just passed down. That's not, that's not the point. The point is my dad did something wrong 
And because of that, I am sick and infirmed, and that curse is following me. So you see what I mean? So I, my dad didn't, didn't forgive someone the way he was called to forgive, just for example. And because of that, I was born with a malformity in my body. It, oh, it makes me so mad. It makes me so mad. It makes me angry. To believe in generational curses is to deny the gospel of Jesus Christ. The idea that I am saved, I am forgiven, I am on my way to heaven, I'm under the blood of Christ, adopted into the family of God, reconciled by a holy God through the gospel, but I'm cursed at the same time? Are you kidding me? It's just ridiculous. It denies grace. It denies redemption. It denies the forgiveness of sin. It denies our adoption. It denies everything that Jesus accomplished. And it's just foolishness. It's a denial of the truth of the gospel. And I don't have much patience for denials of the gospel. God does in many families the same thing He did for Abraham. He calls them out of their idolatry and sinful traditions to follow Him. Abraham's family was moon worshipers. And God came to him, called him out of that. You're going to follow me. You're going to go to a land I'll show you. He does that through the gospel of Jesus Christ. So, questions, comments? Don't let me scare you into not asking a question. Yes. Yeah, actually, second, third. Let me go back and see what it is. Okay, so there's two schools of thought. And to be honest, both could be true at the same time, really. Uh, two schools of thought. One is that the visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children. Okay, sorry, i got to repeat the question. They were all on me about the, the live stream because nobody knew what the question The question is, why does God stipulate the third and fourth generations in the curse rather than just saying, I'm going to curse whoever, doesn't, whoever bows down to an idol. Um, two schools of thought. The first is that um, the, and I'm not sure about this, this is just one of, the, one of the explanations, is that it was a cultural Israelite Hebrew way of saying, I'm going to visit the I'm going to visit the consequences of sin on everybody in the family at that time. So, and they point to things like Achan, you know, where Achan stole the things and his, his whole family. And so the, the way of saying to the third and fourth generation is everybody that's alive at that point. Uh, I, I, don't, I don't subscribe to that. I don't, I don't, I mean, I could be wrong and some Hebrew scholar can show me where I'm wrong, but I don't think I am. I think that... The point that he's making and the reason why it's third and fourth generation is to show, number one, that he punishes the, he punishes the sin that is the sins that are, I say, passed down from parent to child. Not that the punishment is passed down, but the, the children learn from the parents and they commit the same sins as the parents and that punishment follows them and follows them. And it's, the curse is from the third and fourth generation. But the promise is much greater, grander. He says, and I, I bless those showing steadfast love to a thousands of those 
who, who love me and keep my commandments. Does that answer your question? I think it's the, the juxtaposition of the magnitude and the power of the promise against the, the truth of the curse. It doesn't mean that if the sixth generation is still committing idolatry, God's like, well, I can't punish them. I only said it was third. It doesn't mean that at all. It just means that I'm going to, I'm going to punish those who hate me. I'm going to punish those who are idolaters. I'm going to punish those as that sin is passed down from father to son, if that's the way that you raise your family, which is why Deuteronomy tells us to raise your kids in the, in the uh, promises and commands of God. Uh, and the promise is so much grander of those who, that love, that steadfast love is those who love me and who keep my commandments. I don't know if I answered your question. I was all over the place there. Okay, so to follow these first two commands, have no other gods before me, no images, no created things to aid in your worship, um, is to understand that we cannot remake God in our image. We need to be remade into His image. And that only happens, as we know, with a relationship to Jesus. Okay, questions before we move on? All right, this one's going to be a doozy. The next command concerns the use of God's name. Verse 7 is not on the screen. Oh, there it is. You shall not take, this is third command, you shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain, for the Lord will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain. The use, to use the name of God without due consideration, due reverence, due honor. Honor due to Him as God and worthy of Him as God is sinful. Literally, it says in Hebrew, you shall not lift up the name of Yahweh for nothingness. The name of Yahweh your God for nothingness. It is to use the name of God without the seriousness and the glory that he deserves. Now, in the context of Israel, in the culture of Israel, it, of course, meant that you're not to use the name of God flippantly. Uh, and they took it so seriously that Jews today still won't use, uh, won't use the name of God. Uh, they'll use, if you ever see like blogs written or articles written by Jewish people, they won't even spell out God. It'll be G-D, you know, because they just won't use the name. God didn't tell us we could not use His name. He said that we could not use it in a flippant way. We could not use it in an unconcerned way. We could not use it in a careless way. And, and so in the context of Israel, it was, of course, not to use it uh, the name of God without due consideration, without due honor, but also it was not to utter false prophecies or teachings in the name of God and so profane His name. It was not to use His name as a curse upon other people. Uh, it was not to, to, to use His name carelessly in taking oaths that we vow to one another. In fact, in Levit Leviticus 19.12, it says, You shall not swear by my name falsely, and so profane the name of your God. I am the Lord. I am Yahweh. Now, this command in verse 7 of Exodus 20, it's worded so generally and so nonspecific, um, it's worded generally enough to include pretty much any misuse of His name. 
anything other than using His name in honor, in reverence, in praise, in worship, without due consideration of who it is we're talking about and the majesty that is due to His name is to break this command. And His name is much more than just a name. It's His, it's his very identity. So for us, for us, like a name is not, it's just a label, you know? Like, even when I named my kids, we were like, ooh, I like that name, let's put that on them, you know? We, it, it was just a label, but, but it, it, yeah, our names are, not always, but most of the time it's just something we have. It's not who we are. But God's name is an expression of His identity, of who He is, His nature. When His name is used, we're referring to the essence of His divine nature, Psalm 8.1 says, How majestic is your name in all the earth. Psalm 106.8 says that He saved them for His namesake. And one of the first things that we're taught to pray by Jesus is what? Hallowed, holy, sanctified be your name. Let your name be holy. Let your name be sanctified. God's name represents His nature. So to misuse it is an attack or to make light of His very nature, of who He is. He takes it very, very seriously. Now, many over-literalize this command. And they say that the name of God specifically is Yahweh, the I Am, right? And so it's okay to say God. It's okay to say Lord. It's okay to say Jesus. It's okay to say all of these things as an exclamation point or when you're surprised or something like that. But as long as you don't say Yahweh, you know, there, there's a myriad of other names as well. But God's names in Scripture express everything about His nature. El Shaddai, God Almighty, that's His name. Lord is what we translate Yahweh from. El Elyon, Yahweh Rohi is the Lord is my shepherd. Yahweh Yireh or Jehovah Jireh, you might have learned it that way. The Lord is my provider. Yahweh Rapha, he's my, he's my healer. Uh, Yahweh Nisi is my banner. You know, all of these things express who God is. It's not just a tag on him, it, it expresses his nature. They, each, of these, each of these, and there's a myriad more, are expressions of God's name, of who He is. So any name that we use to refer to God in any way is the use, technically, of His name. Because we're speaking about the nature of who He is when we use these words in Scripture to describe Him. So to speak about the reality of God using any of the names, Lord, God, Almighty, whatever, pick, pick whatever name that you want. To use any of those given in Scripture in an unworthy manner is to break this command. Now, <clears throat> I don't know if you know this or not, but I, I do a lot of study and preparation to teach on Sunday mornings and on Wednesday nights, lots. Uh, because, I'm, to be honest, I'm responsible to God for what I say um, and how I teach and how I exposit His Word. And, and to be quite honest with you, that scares me. And so not only do I have to be clear about how, you know, what I'm saying and what it means, but I also have to be right. I also have to be in line with what the Scripture says, or there is no power, there is no authority, and I will be judged more harshly than others for it. We're told that in James chapter 3. So 
The last week or so, I usually try to work on Wednesday night um, over the weekend so I have a good run and start getting into the week before we come to Wednesday night. I don't just throw this together on Wednesday night. So last week, I was studying this passage and studying this command, and uh, there's lots of resources I use to kind of help. You know, I listen to lectures about, you know, different ways this command has been through history and all that kind of stuff. And I was driving I was driving in Derby. I was coming from Wichita and I was driving in Derby. And when I'm driving, that's when the best time for me to listen to things. And so I was listening to this lecture and I just happened to be listening to it about this command. <clears throat> she does not take the name of Lord your God in vain. And it was going through all of the things historically that it's been understood as. It was going through the Hebrew. It was going through, it's going through all these things, and I'm listening to it. And we, he was talking about using the word Jesus and using the word Lord and using all of these different ways that, that we are, are want to violate the commands. And uh, Dana texts me, and she says, can you stop and get my medicine? And so I stopped at the Derby Drug there right next to Wendy's, and I walked in to get the, our medicines, and I'm standing there in line, and, you know, it's all good, and I've, I've been listening to, you know, I've been listening to all this stuff, and I'm, you know, I, whatever. I'm just minding my own business, and I get up to the counter, and one of her medicines is not, no longer, I don't know, what is it? It's no longer, it's no longer cheap. I know that. <laughs> so anyway, long story short, I am getting somewhere. Sorry for rambling. I'm standing there, and she's getting my medicine together, and on the little screen of the cashier thing, it said $230. And I said, Lord, that's a lot of money. And as soon as I said it, I've been listening to his... Do you realize what you just did? Do you realize... I mean, you're, you just sat in 30 minutes worth of driving listening to this command... And it was, it was involuntary, it was spur of the moments, and Lord, you know, I, I broke his command. I broke his command. Now, there was part of me inside that said, well, you just said, Lord. We, you know, Lord can mean a lot of things. It can mean a person, it can mean a whatever. But down deep in my soul, I knew I, I had just broken this, this command. And so as soon as I said it, I was taken aback that, that it would come out of my mouth, especially after I had been, I mean, the last hour I had been studying this exact command. I mean, here I am preparing to present this to you. You guys need to keep this command. And the first element of surprise or exclamation that comes out of my mouth, I break it. And there it was right in front of me. Sin. You've broken the command. Now, you can justify it. You can, you can do whatever you want to do. You can do mental gymnastics to think why, why it's not so bad and why it's all that, you know, whatever. You might, you know, e even you hearing me that I did this, you might say, well, now, Jason, it's just a slip up. God knows your heart. You know, your heart's in the right place. No, 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 no. Jesus said it's out of the heart that the mouth speaks. God takes this very seriously. The Lord will not... Hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain. It could not be more clear. The idea is that you will not go unpunished for using his name in vain. The command is specifically and technically, do not lift up his name to nothingness. Do not use it at all without reverence, the reverence due to it when you're speaking of this God. So what do we do? What do we do 
when we break it. Like I did. Yes, we repent. What did I do when I got back in the truck? I repented before God and I trusted in the gospel. And I entrusted myself to the promise of forgiveness in the gospel. And at that moment, that moment, I was forced, I was forced to think on the fact and and dwell on the fact that when Jesus suffered on the cross and He died on the cross and His blood was spilled and He took the beating before they crucified Him, the suffering, the pain, the blood that He shed was payment for what I just did in the, in the pharmacy. And so when that realization hits, I can't take it lightly. I just told you I get really upset when these generational curse people deny the gospel. For me to say, well, it was just a slip up. You didn't really mean it. You didn't. What? Son, you're denying the gospel. You're denying the reality that Jesus suffered because of what you just did in there to pay for that. And so I can't take it lightly either. I can't take it lightly. None of us can take it lightly. We don't fall off in despair. We don't curl up in a ball and say, oh, I can't go on anymore. There's no hope. We have the gospel. And so we rejoice in that gospel, but we can't take it lightly. In that moment when I was studying this command and that the word came out of my mouth in the pharmacy, the law of God did what the law of God is supposed to do. It convicted me and it drove me to the Savior, which is my only hope. Questions, comments? you have any questions about using the name of the Lord in a frivolous or vain way? No? Well, that's all I got then. We're going to get out early. So I figured, I I knew I would be at least 45 minutes here and the Sabbath is going to take us a little time. So we're going to wait and do that next week. Okay, any questions, comments? Yeah. But he pays attention to when you say it. Hmm. Because when you say Jesus or Lord, he turns to see yeah. what you want. Yeah. And it, Denny said that he heard a preacher one time say that when you say Jesus or Lord or, or that, that it captures God's attention and he turn, Jesus turns to see what you want. And so. Uh, I can understand the picture that that paints. I can understand it. Um, one thing that one thing that I was also convicted of this week is I don't do very good when God's name is used in vain when it comes to calling other people to repentance. So I'm in the grocery store and somebody says OMG behind me or whatever. I've been, I've been, uh, there's no other word for it, sinful, you know. I, I, should, I should turn around and say, do you know what you just did? You know, 
my father, he, he's got this thing he always does. Somebody says the name Jesus or whatever just in casual conversation. He says, are you praying? Are you praying right there? You want me to pray with you? I don't do, I don't do, I, you know? And not that they would say, oh, I'm so sorry. I didn't mean to, you know, more than likely they're going to tell you, shut up and mind your own business. But at least they're hearing the law of God given to them. You know, it, the law of God will do its work. You don't have to convince them. You've given them the law of God and that will plow the field, so to speak, hopefully. Any other questions, comments before we go? Don? Sacrificing to what? Sacrificing to health? Sacrificing to the pills that I buy, like medicine, like my blood pressure pills? Yeah, I don't think so. I don't think so. I mean, God give us medicine. God give us brains. He's given us doctors. That'd be like saying, if I break my leg, I shouldn't go to the emergency room because it'd be worshiping the doctor there. You know, I think God's given us, you know, God's given us all that we have, including food, including, including everything and everything. So I'm not, you know, I'm not, I'm not sure I understand your question. So maybe I'm, maybe I'm misinterpreting Okay, so Don said there's some groups that he's heard of that say that going to a doctor is giving your worship to doctors and not God. Um, I'm going to be on the opposite end of that spectrum. That's like saying, you know, that's like, <clears throat> that's like saying, you know, cooking with a stove is giving our worship to the inventor or flying on an airplane is given you know god's given us medicine he's god's given us uh and most of those groups uh most of those groups would claim heal a physical healing in the gospel that i don't think the gospel promises so the gospel does not promise physical healing in this life now that doesn't mean physical healing doesn't happen god still heals so for sure but that there's going to, unless Jesus returns, there's going to come a time where you're not going to be healed and we're all going to die. Uh, so that, that physical healing. And, and I, take, I take umbrage with the, I don't know if this is what you mean, but uh, I, I don't like the whole, um, what's it called? It's something faith, the word of faith movement where if you have enough faith, you're going to get exactly what you want from God. That's blasphemous. So... Uh, if you have enough faith, you're going to be healed. If you have enough faith, you're going to be rich. If you have enough faith, you don't have to go to the doctor. You know, I, I love seeing faith healers on TV wearing glasses. I'm like, what are you wearing glasses for, man? And I was a, I was a hospital chaplain. I was a hospital chaplain for five years, and I legitimately have seen people miraculously healed of diseases and infirmities and all kinds of things. I have seen it. I know it's real, but I've never seen a faith healer walking through the hall of a hospital healing people. So, yeah, there, that's a whole other discussion. 
So yes, there, there, I guess there, anything can be an idol, so you could, you could idolize anything really, but I don't think that I was sinning by taking blood pressure medicine. Any other questions? All right, let's go. Father, we do love you. We thank you for your word. God, thank you for giving us your word and help us to apply it to ourselves. Uh, each one of us has a different story, a different, um, uh, different proclivity, a different tradition that we've grown up with. God, they're not all wrong. They're not all wrong. They're not all sinful. Just help us to examine our own self, God, and to, and to examine ourselves in truth by your word and by the spirit that you've given to indwell us that illuminates this word. God, and help us just to be thoughtful about our traditions and our practices and all of those things. Uh, God, knowing that um, it is an issue of the heart and we want to be faithful to you. We don't want to be faithful to these commands because it earns us anything before you. We know that it does not because we have not kept them perfectly and we cannot keep them perfectly. But we want to be faithful to you because these are your stipulations of relationship with you. This is, this is a life pleasing to you. And because we have been saved, because we have been redeemed by Jesus Christ, we want to live a life that is pleasing to you. So help each of us just to search our own hearts, search our own practices, God, and to, um, and to live, according to your, live according to your word. We thank you and we love you. In Jesus' name, amen.